0: Can we change the way we produce food to both meet the needs of humans whilst regenerating our soils and ecosystems? And can we do so in a way that improves the financial viability of farms? These questions are becoming increasingly urgent to answer, and we're here to investigate a promising technique called agroforestry in order to find out how it can help us with these challenges. We'll be interviewing farmers, scientists, and other experts to share with you their experiences, practical advice, and scientific research.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Regenerative Agroforestry Podcast. We're your hosts, Etienne and Dimitri. Today, we're super happy to share with you an interview with Ryan Zinn from Dr. Bronner. Dr. Bronner is actually one of the first companies um, to implement the Regenerative Organic Certification And they're really pioneers in transitioning uh, agricultural systems towards more regenerative practices through their supply chains. And it's great because we're able to talk about this aspect with Ryan uh, on a more like global supply chain business level. But we're also able to really get an insight on his work on the field with smallholders. And it's a really great way of understanding how agroforestry works out in a totally different context
0: across the world. I think that Ryan shares with us some really important tips um, that we can also use in our context in terms of how to manage diversity on the farms. And this is you know, a big topic that we've already touched upon with many of uh, the farmers and practitioners that we've interviewed. And so he shows to us how he's using infrastructure and the importance of infrastructure that enables the farmers that they're working with to provide their, the, to provide, uh, their supply chains to diversify their farms. And so again, this links, you know, diversity with infrastructure, and he's giving us some practical info as to how they're making that work in their fields with the smallholder farmers. So it was really exciting to talk to Ryan, and we hope that you enjoy the interview. Hi, Ryan. Welcome
1: to the podcast.
2: Thank you so much for having me. This is great.
0: Could we start
1: maybe with an introduction of uh, who you are and how you got into agroforestry?
2: Absolutely. My name is is Ryan Zinn, and um, I work for an organic and fair trade um, soap company based in the United States, Dr. Bronner's. And Dr. Bronner's is really, um, I would say, a a pioneer in in the the space in that um, we've developed vertically integrated supply chains all over the world to supply our raw materials. And really, our goal was to establish organic and fair trade raw uh, raw material supply chains. Um, And as luck would have it, the vast majority of our raw materials um, come from perennial or agroforestry systems. I actually got started in agroforestry in the late 1990s when I worked in southern Mexico at the time of the or one of the heights of the, the Chiapas conflict um, where I would work with coffee farmers and I was exposed to um, agroforestry in all of its different forms. And there I really became um, quite a big fan, I would say, of, of agroforestry as a technique and, and really as an organi- organizing concept um, for rural communities. Um, And it was there in working with coffee farmers that I really began to um, learn and understand more of agroforestry systems as an organizing concept.
1: And to set the scene, could you tell us a bit um, why Dr. Bronner would, you know, why such a company would get involved uh, with regenerative agriculture in general and with agroforestry as well?
2: Well, that, that's a great question. You know, one of the things that happened with Dr. Bronner's as a, you know, really kind of a small, in what we call in the US, like a counterculture company, and um, that it was v- vegan. Um, it was primarily, you know, uh, Castile soap and it had a very small niche, uh, you know, consumer base. Um, but about 15 to 20 years ago, the, the family decided to make the, the decision to transition all raw materials. And we're talking about, you know, coconut oil primarily. Um, but also palm oil, olive oil, um, and some essential oils like mint oil and lavender oil, all to organic. Um, and this is at the time when the national organic standard here in the United States was really beginning to take off. And so, um, as do many companies, you know, particularly in the U.S. and some in Europe, um, you end up buying, you know, most of your raw materials from brokers or, or intermediaries. Um, and this is a good way to start your business because it allows you to not invest so much capital in developing supply chains. Um, but what the, the Bronner family quickly realized was that um, despite the fact that you will have like this organic certificate to accompany these raw materials, you really have no idea about the integrity of the product. Um, there's always risk of fraud um, and adulteration. Um, and then similarly, you have really no idea about the, the, you know, the livelihood of the farmers and the farm workers on the ground. Um, and so our goal was to then find organic and fair trade supply chains. Um, But what we quickly found was that there was, in fact, no certified fair trade um, palm oil, for example, or no certified fair trade um, coconut oil. And so as a result, um, the Bronner family made this this wild decision to actually set up um, and invest in vertically integrated supply chains. And so our first organic and fair trade. Um, coconut oil um, project was in Sri Lanka, and that was set up about 15 years ago. Um, and since coconut oil really is the, the backbone of the vast majority of our products, um, from there, we really began to expand out um, you know, our, our product line as well as our supply chains. And so since then, um, we've expanded out on a number of agroforestry projects that we've either set up ourselves in partnership with smallholder farmers, um, or we work really closely with Uh, third-party suppliers that have the same values and ethics that we do. Um, So right now we've got a number of vertically integrated supply chains that we basically own and operate um, in partnership with small farmers all around the world and that's in Sri Lanka, Ghana, um, Samoa, and in India. And then we work really closely with other um, third-party suppliers in places like Palestine, um, Brazil, um, Paraguay, and Ecuador.
1: And what's your role exactly in, in this whole um, organization, then, and all these events? <laughs> yeah,
2: that, that's a good question. You know, um, one of the things you realize very quickly when you work on the ground um, all over the world is that um, what you have in your job title doesn't always necessarily, you know, go along with what you, the reality is on the ground. So, um, you know, primarily my focus is on designing systems Um, uh, regenerative systems, whether that's perennial and agroforestry systems, or that's more annual systems for essential oils, like in places like India. Um, And the idea is that we want to support and accompany small farmers. Um, And, you know, really one of the biggest challenges for small farmers all around the world is is in many cases, not so much the practices themselves. A lot of small farmers are pretty regenerative in their practices out of necessity, Um, but they face a lot of challenges in getting their, um, products to market and actually being compensated fairly for what they produce. Um, so from our perspective, that is to support or actually set up the infrastructure and facilities to get their raw materials to market. Um, so that might be setting up like oil mills, for example, in Ghana and Sri Lanka and in Samoa. Um, or it might be figuring out other ways for farmers to diversify um, their production so that they can have a stable livelihood. You know, one of the things that we've noticed, you know, over the course of our journey, the last 15 years is, you know, our progression generally is to get farmers, as we say, in the door in English. You know, we want to be able to give them um, an organic premium um, that reflects all of the sort of investment that the farmers are doing. Um, We want to make sure that the payments are, you know, categorized and certified as fair trade. So that gets the farmers kind of on that first step. But really, you know, despite the fact that they're receiving a fair payment for, let's say, palm, you know, their palm fruit in Ghana, um, the reality is, is that farmers um, need to really diversify um, not only to create climate resilient systems on the farm, um, but also to be really economically resilient. Um, So what we want to do is make sure that we have pathways for farmers to market other crops that, quite frankly, You know, Dr. Bronner's will actually never use um, things like cassava or taro or or turmeric or or cocoa, for example. And so our goal is to utilize sort of the framework and the infrastructure that we have set up um, in these communities to be able to develop uh, markets and um, opportunities for farmers to be able to sell their products either at a premium um, to importing countries in Europe and the United States, um, or to actually distribute locally. So that way, local communities can actually have access to really organic, regenerative, and healthy food.
1: We'll definitely come back to a lot of these things you just uh, introduced to us. But first, we wanted to really have a clear idea of what your projects look on the ground. And this is where Dimitri is going to take over from me.
0: Yeah, we, we, we were very curious as to what the designs look like um, on the ground uh, when you're working with these farmers.
2: Absolutely. So I should say, you know, um, the designs really vary by kind of country by country, community by community. Um, whereas in, in the South Pacific and the Polynesian indigenous culture really has this deep history in agroforestry that, you know, is very vibrant to this day. Other countries have, have different experiences. So I'll talk a little bit about Ghana because that's a good example of you know, what we see is maybe a composite experience. And so, you know, a lot of countries and smallholders particularly um, have gotten a lot of bad uh, information and in education from let's say government extension agents, or in many cases, even agrochemical companies that, that really focus on building these, you know, monoculture systems. They say, you know, even though you've got three to four hectares, you should just plant oil palm and that's it. Um, and so there's a lot of like, you know, bad history and bad experiences really over the last you know, couple of decades. And so part of our goal is to be able to provide um, a pathway for farmers to convert. So, you know, when you look at your sort of average farmer um, in the eastern region of Ghana, um, you know, in general, what they have are sort of like a mosaic approach to production. So they may dedicate, you know, one or two, you know, one, one to five hectares to oil palm, for example, um, one to five hectares to really densely planted cocoa, Um, And then maybe a hectare or two for for home production, you know, some type of maize and and pumpkin system. And, you know, as farmers begin to replant over the course of, you know, the the lifetime of their cocoa or palm plantations, our goal is to then jump in with opportunities, both with training, um, but also capital and resources to be able to create a diversified system. So in this particular case, our goal really is to in, in in cooperation with farmers is to figure out, hey, look, what is it that you want to produce for a cash crop? You know, as Dr. Bronner's and our project in Ghana, we'll buy, you know, all of the, the oil palm that they can produce. Um, but similarly, it's important for them to have a diversified income for other opportunities, things like cocoa, for example, um, which is another important cash crop for West Africa. Um, so our goal is to look at a given farm, we'll place it basically on a grid a consultation with the farmers will come up with a plan. And generally, this includes a combination of multi-strata species, right? So first of all, we wanna make sure that there is enough um, both biomass species, whether those are um, perennial ground covers um, like peraria, which provides enough ground cover, biomass, and nitrogen fixing elements. Um, We also wanna make sure that there are, you know, tall timber trees that can be used either as fuel wood or also just basically, you know, as shade. You know, one of the challenges in West Africa, particularly with cocoa, is that, you know, much of it is um, really densely planted and there's actually most, most no shade in many cases. And, and farmers have been sort of taught by, you know, agrochemical and extension agents that, you know, if you plant shade in, in a cocoa plantation, you're going to lose production, which is, is quite uh, the opposite. And they actually deal with quite a bit more pest pressure if they don't have any shade. Um, So what we want want to do is make sure that there's a combination of cash crops. So in this particular case, it's cocoa and oil palm, um, that there is enough uh, fruit trees um, that are able to sort of round out their local um, food basket in the economy. And then we also look at a number of other sort of opportunistic crops and whether that might be in succession, things like beans and maize and um, pumpkins, for example, or some what we call maybe more midterm crops, which would include things like cassava, uh, taro or what they call cocoa yam in, in Ghana uh, and other species. And so our goal really is to create a system that reflects nature, um, but is organized and I would say optimized in a sort of way that um, after establishment really takes a uh, farmer, uh, you, you know, labor down to the most minimal other than for pruning and harvesting. Um, but then actually sort of creates the sort of max, it sort of maximizes their production in a way that I think is really important because um, right now, you know, Truthfully, you know, there's just not enough production for farmers to actually make a living. And so it's really quite shocking that farmers continue to farm, despite the fact that it's, it's quite difficult um, to say nothing of the sort of the climatic challenges that they're facing as well. So really, our goal is to come up with a system that both reflects their own abilities, you know, what they have in terms of labor, for example, what they want to do in terms of the production of cash crops, um, whether that's, you know, a, a cocoa dominated system, or a uh, oil palm dominated system, but make sure that there's the right balance of shade trees, for example, uh, enough biomass species to actually keep the fertility in the systems going, and enough um, income and food um, during the succession period. So in most cases, you know, cocoa and oil palm really won't begin to mature and produce sufficiently um, for a decent income. Um, till about, you know, depending on the species or, or the varieties, I should say, you know, about five years in. So we want to make sure that there's enough income in the system um, for farmers. Um, and as a result, um, that means that we would maybe lean, focus focus primarily on things like cassava, sort of in that lower strata, you know, early cycle crops um, to be able to actually make sure that there's income. And, you know, I, I think one thing that's important to realize is that, you know, I've seen all of these amazing, you know, designs for centropic agriculture and, you know, diversified agroforestry systems. And I think they're all fantastic because, you know, conceptually, you know, they're an amazing approach to try to replicate nature. They can sequester carbon, they can do all these things. But without really the infrastructure in place to be able to accommodate the system, um, it becomes really difficult for farmers. So there's no sense in, you know, growing, you know, cassava and turmeric and ginger and all these other crops um, in the early cycles if you have no place to sell them. (laughs) So really our goal is to find opportunities, you know, to process them locally And distribute nationally in Ghana, um, or to process and then export, so that farmers can actually receive a uh, a, a premium. And I should just say, you know, one of our experiences um, in in Samoa has been really interesting. You know, we planted a fair amount of papaya in some of their early trials, and what we ended up with was just too much papaya. I mean, it was just like, you know, (laughs) pretty wild. Everybody was sick of eating papaya by the end of the uh, (laughs) by the end of the year. So what we want to do is to be dynamic and flexible enough to meet the needs of, of farmers and then to be able to accommodate any surplus or other crops um, that can actually generate income for farmers. So I, I apologize if that was a little bit long-winded, but that's, that's kind of a, a rough approach to, to how we think about the systems.
0: That's um, no. It's been a very elaborate and interesting um, um, description. But in all of this description, you haven't really uh, uh, mentioned um, um, or you haven't talked about um, what the farmers produce for Dr. Bronner, right? It really seems that you're helping the farmers before you're uh, trying to make sure they produce for Dr. Bronner. Where does uh, where does Dr. Bronner come into here? Are you making sure that their cash crop is um, is uh, is a part of your supply chain?
2: A- absolutely. So in in Ghana, particular case. Um, you know, our, we have a, a mill um, in the eastern region that processes um, palm fruit, oil palm. And so all of that palm oil um, is really critical for um, like bar soap, right, because of the, the, the fatty acid comp- composition. Um, and so our focus there as farmers begin to replant is to make sure that there is sufficient palm oil in the system, that they can continue to supply us, um, but also that there's enough other crops that are will Kind of reduce the overhead of farmers as well. So we basically take on all of their palm oil that we can. And right now, what we're trying to figure out is where do we prioritize next in terms of facilitating, um, you know, post-harvest, you know, manufacturing or processing. And so right now, I think where we're landing on is primarily things like cocoa, um, because that's a, a big challenge for farmers to fetch a fair price there, and especially to convert to organic is a big challenge in West Africa. Um, And then also finding other opportunities. But, you know, to be honest, at the end, and Dimitri, this is important, you know, in a way because um, we could probably continue on and, you know, buy, you know, monocultured um, organic and fair trade oil palm. Um, But really long term, there's two things that really worry me from just a strictly business perspective. One, um, you know, the economics of smallholder agriculture is just not so favorable that, that young generations are actually looking to go farm. In most cases, they look at their experience of their parents and they're saying, hey, look, this doesn't make sense for me to continue on if it's going to be hard work and very little return. So we want to create a a system where it is rewarding for young farmers and is attractive enough for them to continue to farm. Because if they don't farm, then we don't have a business. Um, And then similarly, you know, as we're seeing, you know, at virtually all of our projects, um, there is some type of climate impact whether it is, you know, various fluctuations in in degrees, it could be extended droughts or rains, um, or it could be things like, you know, typhoons and, and t- tornadoes and hurricanes that, you know, really impact uh, um, the farm's production. And so what we want to do is to make sure that we have a climate resilient system built in um, that actually safeguards not only the farmer's livelihood, but, you know, quite frankly, ours as well.
1: And at the moment, these... Um plots or these tests and these different designs, um, to what scale are you able to deploy them? Are you just testing them out on on test sites or are you already deploying that through the supply chain?
2: Um, So it it really depends by country. So in the particular case of Samoa, we just wrapped up um, a project that was actually funded through the World Bank, interestingly enough, um, that was focused primarily on climate change adaptation, um, which is a big challenge in, in the South Pacific. And there we uh, planted um, upwards of about 350 hectares of diversified uh, multistrata agroforestry systems with 500 farmer families. Um, So that was our first step in terms of replanting um, portions of their farms. So the farms in in Samoa, for example, tend to be quite a bit bigger, um, anywhere between 10 to 50 hectares. Um, And so what we wanted to do was start I would say, small and have farmers dedicate about three hectares of production to really intense, you know, diversified agroforestry systems um, as a jumping off point. Um, But overall, when you work with that many farmer families, then you end up with, you know, decent um, number of hectares. In the particular case of Ghana, um, it's a little bit slower because, you know, farmers, as they look at new technologies, generally, they're not going to commit their entire production (laughs) to to a new technology they may not have much experience with. So our approach there has been a little bit different. We started several years back with a few pilot farms that we owned and managed um, to be used as training sites, and then with a handful of our own staff and some real key farmers to be able to begin to plant these different models um, on their own land. And now moving forward, we're looking to expand that out um, quite significantly with you know dozens of farmers and you know many hectares of land um, to be able to expand that model out. And and I should say you know. We've got basic principles that we would like to see implemented. You know, that means that there's diversification, certainly that there is enough biomass and fertility um, cycling through the system. And then shade certainly needs to be a a priority, particularly in West Africa. Um, But from there, you know, farmers may choose this, you know, sort of whatever crop mix that most suits them well. Um, You know, we don't want to take that away necessarily from them, but really make sure that, you know, in the case of Ghana, oil palm is really kind of at the core. Um, And then, you know, right now we're in the process of uh, designing a few pilots in India, primarily um, with uh, fodder species. Um, You know, there's a a big challenge there in terms of both biomass and fertility. And while the farmers that we work with grow um, annual crops primarily, usually a rotation of of mint, um, some type of staple grain or or rice, um, and then any combination of of leguminous crops or, or other types of crops. Um, One of the things we notice is that for for the dairy and the cattle population is that they have very um, poor quality pasture and really have very little uh, nutrition. And so the idea would be then to um, create a number of fodder banks where farmers could actually grow perennial fodder species that can supplement or be the primary feed source for um, their livestock. Um, And then lastly, in Sri Lanka, um, because the the vast majority of production there usually goes hand in hand with dairy cows and pasture, um, we're looking at different ways to actually improve both the pasture quality, which is a big challenge in some tropical countries. um, But then, like I said, um, create systems that really capitalize on perennial fodder systems um, that will take some of the pressure off of the ground cover um, and perhaps actually allow for for farmers to um, intensify their dairy herds by having better quality perennial fodder um, available for their farmers.
0: This is a a huge diversity, clearly a a huge diversity of expertise that's needed to to consult and help the farmers with all these systems. So where do you get your your knowledge from?
2: Um, Well, that's a great question. So we are lucky to have a a great combination of of local expertise on the ground. Um, Each project has its... Um, you know, sort of um, share of uh, local technicians and, and field officers um, that is required out of you know both sort of our approach, but also the organic um, standards required that we provide training. So we hired local staffers to be able to do that and be able to implement these programs um, in collaboration with farmers. And then we've also worked with a couple of great um, you know consultants and technicians that have a, a lot of deep history and knowledge in. Um, the agroforestry world. And so uh, one of our primary partners is an organization um, based out of Bolivia, which is called Ecotop. Um, And so they've emerged really, I think, probably out of the the same school of Ernst Gottsch and and those folks, you know, in the centropic agricultural system. Um, And so we try to balance out uh, a combination of sort of international consultants and our own expertise with that of, of local technicians, um, to make sure that what we're you know proposing actually makes sense, um, and it has a greater likelihood of survival.
1: Once you have this knowledge, how do you make sure that it really responds to the needs of the local farmers? I understand you have a lot of local partners, but what is the process for getting those ideas out there and those techniques? That is a great question. So
2: you know, I'll, I'll use um, probably our, our example in Samoa as one of our, our sort of like best you know test cases. So, you know, early on, we've done uh, a number of surveys with a small sample of farmers to understand really kind of like what their priorities are um, and what their plans are. And so that gives us a, a base of knowledge um, that's really, really important. Because if we come up with a crazy idea, you know, um, from internationals or from the Europe or the United States, um, then they just look at us like we're totally crazy. Um, and then the other aspect is, is that, you know, farmers all over the world, they, they get all these proposals all the time that, you know, somebody comes in and says, hey, look, we want to buy, you know, whatever, you know, 50 tons of uh, cassava or something, and then then they never show up. So farmers are generally pretty, uh, I would say, cautious in many cases um, in terms of, you know, developing commercial relationships. So I would say, first off, it's really important for, you know, commercial partners to have um, deep roots and be really committed with the communities that they're working with if if you don't have that sort of relationship and trust built in, um, the chances of actually developing these systems is really really limited um, and then from there you know it's a consultation process where we determine with each individual farmer you know aside from those things that are really core to the project um, like biomass and, and and shade species, you know what what do they like to produce and where do they see the biggest business opportunity? Um, in addition to what they supply for Dr. Bronner's, um, and they basically choose those crop species um, themselves, and that, that in a way really empowers farmers to make those choices. Um, and then uh, we generally start relatively small, um, primarily through training. Um, so what we've done is create a number of uh, pilot test farms um, that act as outdoor classrooms for farmers. Um, and you know, one of the things that you know we talk a lot about um, in you know farmer extension is to say you know show don't tell. You know, farmers, A, would like to see with their own eyes um, how the system works. They don't, they don't want to see a video. They don't want to hear you talk about it in a classroom. Um, they actually want to go into the field and see what it looks like. So we established a number of pilots there um, to be able to really demonstrate the, the technique, but also really the potential. Um, you know, there's a lot of myths, you know, that you come across sometimes in, in working in rural communities all over the world. Um, and so a lot of times there's sort of fear um, that species might be competing with each other or there's not enough water or, you know, those types of things that are, you know, are quite common. Um, so what we want to do is actually demonstrate that, you know, these diversified systems um, really, you know, many cases planted very uh, closely in terms of the spacing. Um, not only, you know, work together, you know, um, in many cases, um, but actually can actually produce quite a bit more um and so that i think is something that's really important for farmers and then secondly you know our goal as you know trainers in many cases is to draw out some of that traditional knowledge that that farmers already have you know i'll be honest i've been to some farms you know all over the world that you know go far and above of what i've ever expected as far as you know really diversified agroforestry systems and so it's really working with those farmers to really highlight their experience because you know as an outsider Farmers, you know, are less likely to trust me than they might, you know, their neighbor, for example. And so our goal is to really, you know, find those, those farmers that are taking the lead and have some experience because when, when farmers learn from their peers, um, there's a greater chance that you have, you know, better adoption. Um, and then from there, our, you know, goal is to be able to monitor and accompany the farmer's experience within the first couple of years of establishment. Um, so that means regular visits to A, um, troubleshoot um, any problems that they might have. Um, you know, we want to be able to monitor um, seedling um, mortality um, and see if there's any reason why a given, you know, cropper species is in fact, you know, maybe dying you know, at a higher rate than others. Um, and that requires us to have engagement on, ongoing with farmers. Um, and then the next step really is to uh, monitor yields, right? You want to see what is actually being produced on the farm. And that requires a fair amount of uh, note taking by farmers and by our field staff. Um, but we want to be able to prove to say, hey, look, not only is the system more productive, um, but potentially over time it will actually be less labor. Um, because our, our sort of experience, at least my experience, is that once you have an established and, and relatively mature um, system in place, it actually reduces your labor costs quite a bit. Whether that is contractors you have to buy, you know, you know, purchase through through the neighborhood. Or that's your own time. Uh, we want to make sure that we actually reduce those labor costs. But to get there, you have to kind of go through this establishment phase, which can be a little bit tough because it's generally more work at the early you know stages. Um, but overall, you know, one of our goals is for farmers to keep this basically what we call like a farm diary, and that allows for them to you know make sure that they are recording everything that they're doing, whether it is labor um, species, you know, that are, are performing well or maybe not performing well. Um, or in some cases, you know, we want to see what the production looks like. Um, ideally we don't want to sacrifice, um, a farmer's income, um, for having a beautiful, you know, food forest, but doesn't necessarily do much for their income. There's no chance of them continuing that on. So We want to be able to monitor that going on. And this actually allows us to make, um, decisions on the ground and make changes as, as needed. You know, one of the things that we did in Samoa, um, was plant a, a huge, uh, variety of, uh, Annual biomass species um, that would allow for farmers to really build up that, that biomass and soil fertility in the first year during establishment. And then what we found was that all of these invasive snails really like these biomass species. And so they went in and, you know, <laughs> ate, ate them all up. And we had to kind of come up with a different plan. But you know, had we not been working with farmers really closely, we would never have known. You know, I think I think too many you know, planting projects go in they'll plant species and then they won't see farmers again, you know, for another five years. And when they come back, you know, the, the system has now, you know, worked well because they haven't really provided that monitoring and, and accompaniment.
0: There's, you gave enough so much information. It's fascinating. Um, you know, with the mazi Farm and, you know, me currently in Brazil, etc. cetera, we, we have quite a lot of, um, we have an understanding um, or let's say, were quite familiar with the centropic systems, and one of the critics of the centropic systro- systems is the labor cost that's involved in managing the system, right? I mean, all this, uh, there's you know, there's the chop and drop technique, and and, and it requires huge labor interventions to to manage. Um, you know, even if it is five hectares, it's 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 a lot of labor, and so I'm I'm very interested to find out how did because you mentioned it now. How did um, you manage to, and, and your farmers and on all the teams that you're working with, how did you manage to, to reduce that need, um, um, reduce that uh, labor requirement in these type of stratified biomass producing um, tropical systems?
2: Yeah, that, that's a great point, Dimitri. I, I think, you know, in general, farmers are a little hesitant um, in some cases um, to you know adopt this this sort of entropic a- approach um, for that same reason right um, they, they see mm-hmm. you know that their their workload is multiplying exponentially um, and so really um, there's a couple of approaches that we've kind of looked at one um, one of the things that we do when we um, evaluate a, a farmer for their suitability for a project like this is to see how much Family labor or contractors they have um, to be able to actually implement this in their early stages. Um, certainly, if there is a you know a farmer um, and all of his or her children have now left the farm and they live in the city and it's just him by himself or her by herself, um, they're probably not a great candidate. Um, so we want to start first and just do an inventory to see what is available and, you know, what has been the recent experience. Uh, and second, we're, we're looking at two things. One um, is to figure out how to best take advantage of different technologies, um, in particular, implements and, and, and tools to be able to, to streamline that process. So, for example, in, in Ghana, um, you know, they're, you know, sort of maintaining even just in the, the, the palm monocultures with, uh, you know, prairie cover cropping. Um their you know hand labor is is quite expensive and you know t- quite time consuming. so we've we've been able to sort of work with local contractors to um, substitute you know like electric or or gasoline powered um you know, strimmers or, or brush cutters for. Uh, the traditional machetes and so as a result then that basically reduces their workload and cost quite a bit um though we're still looking at you know different options as well you know one of my favorite things to do is is talk with other agroforestry folks and figure out what tools are they using to do these types of things um and especially kind of on the larger plantations you can actually use um you know mechanized um you know weeders and and brush cutters and things like that um at at a greater success rate and then lastly you know one of the things that we've really tried to do is, is look at um, sort of this element as a potential opportunity. You know, one of the things that is a big challenge all over the world um, is just, you know, unemployment, especially for young people. And so potentially this could be an opportunity for young people to actually be trained um, in in the uh, the maintenance. And I would say probably a bigger challenge is the you know the tree pruning especially as trees get quite quite tall um, it becomes a lot more challenging um, and so we're hoping you know as time goes on to be able to support uh, teams of young uh, uh, contractors to be able to provide these services um, but with tools and at a reasonable rate in the event that farmers take on a relatively large you know plot of land to, to plant in an agroforestry system but quite can't manage it themselves um, so you know i would say you know looking at those opportunities Uh, might be one possible way to to tackle this problem.
0: Have you found that um, it is worth um, investing in biomass tree producing species, even if you have to um, invest in all this pruning work?
2: Um, I would say, you know, if you asked me, I would say it's absolutely worth it. You know, one of the analogies I, I like to, to tell farmers, it's it's as if you, you know, if you were to plant a, 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 a you know, your, your, your grid or your, your plot and it was all just cash crop species, it, it might look good um, and you might have some decent production early on. Um, but the reality is it's like having a beautiful, you know, sports car like a Lamborghini, but then putting in like very bad gas. You know, and so in the end, you know, you, you're, you're not going to be performing optimally. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. so that, you know, some, sometimes makes sense for, for farmers. And I would say, you know, part of it is is that they have to kind of get over the hump of those, those first couple of years. And, and so we certainly understand that. Um, and we, in fact, try to come up with different um, al- alternatives for farmers to sort of manage that, you know, in, in the event that they don't have sort of the labor available um, or quite frankly, sometimes they're quite old, and so they're unable to do some of these these, these kind of more laborious things. So um, because the systems are relatively young, I would say less than five years, um, it's really a little bit, you know, maybe early to say whether or not farmers have totally adopted this this process wholeheartedly, um, but certainly something that we'll continue to monitor.
0: because as the as the trees grow, it's expected to have more work. Uh, with the pruning, right? You might have less work with um, other types of, uh, you know, initiation phase uh, labor, but you'll have more work managing these uh, biomass producing uh, trees. Is that is that what you guys are, are expecting to happen?
2: That, that's what we're anticipating. So I think there's two sort of, you know, concerns along those lines. One certainly is the labor, um, you know, and that that is something that we can't underestimate. Um, and the second one is really, you know, a, a, a centropic or diversified agroforestry system really requires much more engagement by the farmer than they might have um, done previously. You know, it's really easy if you're just growing a monoculture of coconuts, you know, with some cattle and you know some, you know, sort of ground species, you know, or cover crops. You don't have to worry about the timing of your pruning or harvesting as much. Um, but as we look to incorporate more biomass and shade species you know, the timing of of that um, pruning is really critical um, because if you don't actually, you know, prune um, according to the the season, you might have challenges with, you know, sort of like ripening or or, or maturing of your cocoa pods or your citrus or or what have you. So those are all things that need to be uh, sort of continually trained. Um, And I think, you know, by providing enough incentives for farmers to continue to Um, sort of maintain their system, hopefully we can have enough momentum that they'll continue on, um, you know, really with this approach.
1: As you include more diversity in these systems, are then the farmers able to sell this diversity? Do they have the markets then to bring that produce to and, and, and actually sell it?
2: Yeah, so that, that's a, that's an absolutely important point at the end. You know, um, this is one of the things, as I mentioned before, in Samoa, we ended up with a whole bunch of papaya because that was something that was grows relatively quickly in, in the establishment phase. Um, but then farmers end up with a whole bunch of papaya and no market. So really what we want to do is make sure we have a good balance um, and then figure out how to best allocate those um that, that production. So in most cases, our goal is basically divided kind of what I call like three buckets or three, you know, sort of categories. One, um, Dr. Bronner's um, will take on all of their coconut production or palm production or cocoa production um, to be able to process and then export um, with an organic and fair trade premium. Um, second, you have um, sort of these new emerging opportunity crops, which I would call like cassava, turmeric and ginger um, and others. Um, And there we're in the process of developing the infrastructure and the processing facilities to actually accommodate um, that production and then to sell. So, for example, in Samoa, we are going to um, build a facility to manage the the sort of harvesting, cleaning and processing of ginger and turmeric, because that was one of the crops that we noticed um, that produces quite well in the first couple of years. um, And that could actually fetch a decent price internationally. Um, And the same thing for for cassava in Ghana, for example. Um, We're in the process of building out that system to be able to accommodate that production. And then lastly, we want to make sure that there's an opportunity for farmers to sell into their local markets or just have enough food for their families. And so we're looking at a couple of different ways of accommodating that. So for example, in Ghana, um, at the mill, you know, we have you know, several hundred workers that that work at the mill and so we provide meals for them there. And so our kitchen will then be able to accommodate, you know, the farmers production and buy their produce to be able to prepare in the kitchen itself. That's not a, a long term you know strategy as the system begins to develop and expand. Um, but certainly we're looking at local marketplaces um, in urban areas to have access to, to sort of fresh and, and regenerative products as well. So luckily we have a fantastic team in Ghana who, who are already thinking about these things um, and have already discussed ways to actually convey that produce to Accra um, to be able to sell in in local markets and to ensure that there's enough income for farmers. Um, but this is kind of a, an ongoing quest that, that we've been dealing with um, because um, the reality is, is without that incentive, um, to have this diversified system, um, it's really difficult for farmers to commit this sort of time, you know, this investment into a diversified system only for it to just uh, to sort of compost in the field.
1: Yeah, sure. But just to understand the the extent to which Dr. Bronner is involved, if I understand you, you do provide all this support in terms of uh, infrastructure and transformation and, and getting the produce to market, even on the ones that you weren't originally buying, but where does that stop? I mean, is it just a kind of transition um, phase and then you would you would hopefully have the farmers uh, manage that on their own? Is it then that once you've provided the infrastructure, you also actually buy that produce as Dr. Bronner? Um, so, you know, one of the things that we've
2: found ourselves doing in the last couple of years is to get in the business of of trading, um, so that means finding marketplaces, at least internationally, um, that farmers wouldn't be able to do by themselves. Um, and so that means that engaging, um, you know, buyers, whether that is, you know, organic and, and fair trade, and you know, bio, uh, you know, manufacturers in in Europe or or in the United States. Um, and so as a result, what we'd like to do is sort of kickstart that process. Um, Insofar as we can be useful and provide a service. So, you know, our our partners and project in India, um, while we buy all of the mint oil that we need for our soaps there, they also produce a number of other crops that are really, really useful. So they're now um, sending, you know, organic and fair trade peanuts to Germany. Um, they're also sending holy basil or tulsi to a, a healthcare company here in the United States, and so where we can sort of facilitate and make those connections, um, that's really valuable, right? Even though we don't necessarily um, benefit financially from that, it means that the projects themselves are, are much more stable, um, and it reduces their overhead and costs. So um, in a way, it's it's kind of an indirect way for us to support the project and farmers, though we would not necessarily sort of you know capitalize it on ourselves.
0: It's kind of like the diversity in uh, or having to have diversity in the farms is obliging you also to diversify your business in a way, right? Yeah, I mean,
2: that, that's a great point. I think, you know, it's, you know, our sort of journey, I would say, is like, you know, we thought it was really just enough to be able to buy organic raw materials. We realized that wasn't enough. We needed more engagement with farmers. And then as you see, you know, to actually run a business and to stimulate and incentivize diversification. You, know, you have to accompany farmers along that way and you know ultimately our goal would be for the projects to be able to manage that process themselves but you know quite frankly you know there's enough challenges on the ground um, working with you know several hundred or several thousand smallholder farmers and, and managing that um, just on our primary work alone and so insofar as that we can support that process and that really that transition to diversity and resilience um, then then we're doing our job I think
1: And do you think this diversity and and this resilience uh, would be a model that farmers could adopt even if they weren't uh, selling the produce abroad or do you think it's really attached to being able to sell with a premium well you know really you know my
2: sort of approach is is in what we call here in the us you know the, the the campsite rule you want to leave where you're you know working or living better off than where you found it so if even eventually you know dr bronner's you know disappears for whatever reason um that that farmers will continue on with sort of organic production And really this diversified approach and you know i i see this um actually as a kind of like a test pilot that might be useful um an inspiration you know for other places in the world or even in ghana and samoa even if it has no direct commercial connection to a buyer in the united states or europe for example um you know and i I see it you know really from a couple of different angles one certainly there's a need to Uh, produce more, you know, food and fuel and medicinal plants ecologically. Um, And I think agroforestry is the best way to do that. Um, And I also see a couple of co-benefits that need to be incorporated into any, you know, sustainable development goals or or, or programs developed by, you know, national or local governments. Um, Certainly, we have a problem with Um, employment for young people. Um, And so I feel like agroforestry provides much more opportunities than just growing conventionally or with monocultures. Um, Certainly there needs to be a way to take land potentially out of production. If we can produce more um, on less land through agroforestry, then that allows us to leave land to naturally regenerate and go back to its wild state, as opposed to, you know, this massive expansion that we're seeing in places like Indonesia and Brazil and other places. Um, And then lastly. Um, I see as, as farmers begin to look at this as a response to sort of climate change, this just really builds in what I would call insurance for them um, going forward. Um, you know, one of the things that we've seen really in the coffee sector, particularly in Central America um, and Southern Mexico, is this you know widespread um, infestation of this coffee rust, uh, La Roya. Um, which has been just decimating the, the coffee uh, marketplace in, in these communities. And as farmers begin to respond, you know, my, you know, sort of view and experience has been it hasn't been sort of these improved varieties of coffee necessarily that are going to save the day for, for coffee communities. But it's really this diversification and returning to much more sort of traditional agroforestry approaches. So I, you know, I, my friends always get tired of me always talking about agroforestry, but I do really feel like it's, you know, one of the, the <laughs> few, few techniques that, you know, can actually, uh, ha, has multiple benefits, um, and, you know, m- above and beyond just producing, you know, uh, raw materials for, for committed, you know, fair trade companies. Um, so hopefully, um, our approach will actually provide like a, I don't know, I would hate to use this metaphor, but kind of like a lifeboat or um, sometimes they call it like a lighthouse um, to provide inspiration and information to be able to expand the model, even if it isn't for you know, cash crops to send, sell to uh, an external market, for example.
0: So Ryan, earlier on, you mentioned um, the importance of infrastructure to be able to um, to be able to um, provide solutions for the farmers to to maintain these diversified systems, and that's something that with Etienne we've often, very often talked about, and something that in the podcast we want to dig deeper into. And so I'd love to know um, what are in in your experience with Dr. Bronner and with these thousands of smallholders, um, what are the key you know pieces of infrastructure that are missing for these types of farmers in order to adopt and to scale these types of agroforestry systems?
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Dimitri. You know, infrastructure really is so key. And, and this is one of the things I've noticed working with smallholders all over the world is that in many cases they are you know doing great things. They're in many cases feeding their families, but really there's a lot of missing elements that are either just unavailable um, to them or there's just structural challenges to actually um, be able to advance these things. And so I, I see it, you know, Kind of you know pre implementation and post implementation. So really to start things off, you know farmers need um, you know capital. Um, You know there's a lot of good studies out there about the establishment costs for you know like an average hectare of a diversified agroforestry system. And in general, you're looking at anywhere between you know like one thousand. To 1,200 euros to start off, you know, a, a system, um, and I've seen that to be pretty common, at least in the places that we have worked. So, you know, for small holders in, in West Africa or you know throughout the Americas, that's you know that's a pretty big investment. So, certainly mm-hmm. financing is something that needs to be addressed, um, and then we've done that through a combination of different ways at our projects. Um, and I would say, I don't know if we're necessarily unique, but you know, we try to leverage as much as we do through financing, you know, seedlings through our own program, whether that is like no interest loans or we're able to access grants um, through development agencies like GIZ um, to be able to actually implement these projects. So I would say, you know, sort of that startup capital, I think, is really, really critical um, and not always available. You know, there's a lot of, you know, I would say bad you know, financial institutions all across the world in rural communities where the terms are just really um, not very favorable to the farmers. Um, So I think that needs to be addressed. And we've tried to do that in a variety of different ways, but every place is really different. Second, you know, of course, there is um, the issue of, you know, where are you going to find the planting material? You know, a lot of farmers may have um, enough like oil palm or coconuts or, you know, whatever, you know, and olive trees, for example, that they can actually produce on their own. But as you look to really diversify the system and incorporate, you know, things like biomass species, for example, or or different fruit species, um, you know, Mm -hmm. finding those seedlings aren't necessarily that easy. So, you know, establishing nurseries that can actually accommodate and produce that, I think, is really absolutely critical. And secondly, you know, what I call sort of like, you know, after the farm gate or or post production, really, it's this sort of, you know, I would say these hubs that are able to accommodate and do some value added, you know, for farmers. Um, And so in many cases, I've seen this mostly in the Americas where cooperatives, let's say for a coffee cooperative, you know, certainly they'll buy and sell, you know, coffee on behalf of their members but then they look to actually do some value added elements, which is important as well, whether that's conserving and preserving other you know, crops, I think is really important or just doing some minimal processing before it heads off to the marketplace, I think is absolutely critical. So this is a place where I feel like there needs to be much more development funding because um, right now we have this really kind of extractive model where you know, farmers continue to produce, um, most of the value is added outside of their community Um, And as a result, they're always going to be in this very precarious or vulnerable state, right? Um, Because most of that value is being, you know, sort of generated someplace else. So insofar as that we can have different systems that allow for value added preservation and processing relatively close Mm. to the farm gate, I think that's really, really critical. You know, some crops are great, you know, that you can, you can, you can, you you know, store cocoa, for example, for, you know, quite a while before it actually goes bad. Um, But a lot of them, even oil palm, for example, um, actually has a a relatively uh, short uh, shelf life and you need to process it relatively quickly or or go ransom. So I I think that piece is very, very important. Um, And then lastly, um, my sort of dream would be to have a a global or regional network of of practitioners that could share both knowledge and experience, but also tools um, and resources, um, because I think that's really, really critical. Um, As we look to really optimize these systems, you know, to do what you guys are talking about, which is how do we sort of manage for um, labor costs, for example. Hopefully there's some technology that we can implement that actually reduces those challenges a a little bit. Um, But I think that's going to have to emerge from this global network that that you both are actually fostering to be able to share those experiences as we go forward.
0: Continuing on on the infrastructure, because it's a very, very important topic, does it somehow also... Require your farmers to be um, located geographically in the similar regions. I mean, if you need the teams to train them, if you need to build infrastructure to process, et cetera, et cetera.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think that is one thing that is absolutely critical as you look to set these systems up and and create whatever you know, commercial or cooperative. Uh, Relationships amongst farmers because I I think no one farmer can do this on their own. Um, And so, you know, by setting up systems to collaborate, I think that's really important. And as a result, the scale you need to be able to do that, it needs to have enough farmers to make it worthwhile to to aggregate and have enough throughput to to make it, um, you know, kind of commercially viable. But you don't want to have such a wide you know, sort of geographic distance, where it becomes really, really challenging. You know, both to provide sort of that those services, those accompaniments, you know, the certification services as well. Um, but also, if you're if you're conveying, you know, your produce over, you know you know, many, you know, hundreds of kilometers, you know, not only are you having a a horrible climate climate impact with your greenhouse gases, um, but it just doesn't make for an efficient system. Um, So I think there's different ways that, you know, depending on sort of the crop and the country and those types of things um, that you can accommodate for that. I, I do know, you know, in places in West Africa with cocoa, you may have like satellite offices or purchasing centers that accommodate for that. Um, but I, I think there needs to be kind of this, I would say, like sweet spot, right? You don't want to have it so big that it's very difficult to manage and you lose that intimacy with farmers. But it can't be so small as well that you just never reach economies of scale. So, um, you know, that's really been our, our goal is to make sure that everything is within, you know, relatively close distances. So you have those connections, um, but you want to make sure that you're able to provide those same opportunities for farmers in the, in the region as well.
0: In this past five years, have you seen this diversification and also the work, the infrastructure work, and all the different support that you've provided to the farmers, etc.? Has it made the farmers better off than they were five years ago? Are the farmers following you and wanting, you know, and and really taking on this 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 work? And are they are they economically satisfied with with this um, with this type of new agroforestry that you're presenting to them?
2: Well, first off, Demetri, I should clarify, you know, we started this journey five years ago. Um, We haven't actually planted, you know, for the last five years. And so really it's been in the last couple of years that we've actually begun this this process like on the ground. Um, So we're, you know, I would say between three to four years we have, you know, in terms of some like from start to finish at a given, you know, plot or or pilot. So I would say, you know, I don't want to say it's too early to tell. Um, but, you know, one of the sort of, you know, sort of the beautiful things, but also challenges of working with trees and you know, perennial systems is that, you know, until you start to get some decent production, um, I th- what we say is like all bets are off, you know, you know, can't really tell <laughs> so well if, you know, a farmers are, um, really, you know, enthusiastic about adopting and, and experimenting with the system. Um, and, you know, you really can't tell you know, what the production looks like for like your cash crop to be able to compare it to yields of a monoculture, for example. Certainly there's enough experience and, you know, scientific studies and literature to suggest that you'll have more production um, and you'll be more resilient. Um, But we also have to just sort of prove that out on the ground where we're working as well. Um, So I would say it's a little too early to tell. Um, But that being said, you know, I would say, you know, at least, you know, where we have the, probably the most advanced, you know, and really diversity of experiences, Um, it's really kind of a mixed bag. I would say about half the farmers are very, very enthusiastic and have really gone, you know, the full agroforestry route in terms of planting all the the biomass species and shade and, you know, the great diversity. And there's probably another half or so that um, does kind of this agroforestry light, what what I like to call it, where they basically, you Mm -hmm. know, they may plant some, you know, (laughs) biomass species, but not, you know, the recommendations or they... May have a limited number of uh, you know species beyond some of the more basic cash crops, but you know really it's uh, you know our job to be able to demonstrate that we can in fact you know absorb and buy some of these other crops, for example, or demonstrate that you know while there is some additional labor costs, um, certainly that investment then you know pays dividends down the road. So we're we'll, maybe we should we should we should circle around and talk about it next year <laughs> that we will have more information to talk about.
0: Let's have you on the podcast again to, to uh, cover this issue uh, in a few years' time or something, see how the model has uh, has proved itself. That sounds great.
1: And, and wrapping up a bit this first part where we really were able to go into some detail on, on the projects on the ground, with Dimitri, we, we greatly value uh, mistakes you know, as a source of learning. And that's, I guess, what I wanted to ask you. You know, If you could um, talk to the Ryan of a few years ago before he started the project and share a few of your mistakes and learnings, what, what would your key mistakes and learnings be? Oh, wow, there's, there's so many in a way, you know. This is one of the, the things that I think
2: is really critical to be, you know, open to evaluation and things like that. And so in general, I would say, you know, while I've been personally ex- exposed to, you know, many different, you know, agroforestry models and experiences, um, in general, that's not always the case for, for a lot of farmers or even some of our local staff. Um, and so, you know, in you know, in my particular case, um, you know, I get a little bit too enthusiastic about agroforestry, and so I want to, you know, push ahead and and, and start off at a, at a very large scale. But in truth, you know, I think it's it's a much more of a stepwise approach in terms of engaging not only farmers but really you know, local staff to be able to implement these projects hand in hand with farmers as well. So I would say, you know, part of it is, is, is probably moving a little bit too fast um, and, and also trying to strike this balance of, you know, finding a way to accommodate all of these other, you know, uh, crops um, with, you know, sometimes it's kind of we put the cart before the horse so you you plant all of these crops um, but you don't necessarily have a clear pathway on how you want to commercialize or process them Um, and so to be honest with you you know we are very familiar with you know oil palm and coconuts for example Um, but we're not so familiar with things like you know cassava and and turmeric and so um, it's taken us a fair amount of work to be able to understand both you know the agronomics the reality on the ground Um, But also the marketplace, Um, you know, as as you may know, um, I'm I'm not sure what the experience is in in Europe so much, but certainly in the US um, context, you know, there's always like what we call like food fads, right? And so, you know, some days you may have like, everybody wants to buy gluten-free products or, you know, this type of superfood. And so um, that's a a good opportunity in the short term for producers to sort of fill those needs. Um, But long term, we want to make sure that, if a a fad or or superfood, you know, goes away, that that farmers aren't left, you know, sort of planting all of these things and and not left with it. So we want to be really cautious there. And so I noticed that has been, you know, not so much for us, but, you know, in the industry, a big challenge. Some of you might remember, like, you know, years back, you know, quinoa was really, really popular. And then, you know, farmers in, in the Andes started to plant quinoa and build all this infrastructure. And then now quinoa you know, doesn't make much money, and people aren't buying it as much, and then farmers are left with all this debt um, and overproduction. So we have to be really careful um, there because you know we don't want to undermine um, the the farmers' ability to continue to produce and and have a good livelihood. So, anyways, that was a little bit of a tangent, but I would say, you know, it, when you try to convert some of these, you know, systems thinking. Um, that have been really embedded for, for many, many years, or even in the university system in different countries, it takes a long time. And so sometimes I move a little too fast as far as the, the things I would like to do.
1: Listening to you speak, it's true that the big difference is that you're trying to do um, similar things to us in terms of you know regenerative agriculture, agroforestry, but instead of uh, focusing on local markets, which would be the, the strategy in, in our case, for example, or in the case of a lot of farms we talk to, you're having to also cope with these dynamics of like, the global markets and, uh, you know, food as a, as a commodity somehow. So that's like a whole other level of challenge as well. Yeah, that that's an absolutely important point. I mean, really, you know, our goal is
2: not to um, sort of design systems that go primarily to external, you know, sort of global commodity markets or even, you know, these premium ethical fair trade and organic markets either. Really, we want to strike a balance um, so that way, if for whatever reason you know the the you know the, let's say there's an economic downturn you know as we're seeing right now through the covid crisis you know and maybe there isn't as many imports into europe and the united states we don't want that to then really jeopardize farmers ability to to produce you know profitably, right? So we need to strike this balance really between really addressing sort of local food needs, either within the family structure, within the local community, and then, you know, expanding out into the region and the nation. Um, And then also look where we can be opportunistic to have stable um, and long committed uh, marketplaces for some of these other cash crops. So it's a little bit of a balancing act.
0: I wanted to ask you, um, Ryan, if we could talk a bit just uh, briefly about some of the agricultural mistakes in terms of the designs that um, that you did and that you wish you'd done other uh, in another way, or you know more specific towards the agricultural side.
2: Yeah, well, absolutely. I think probably the most uh, relevant you know examples would be our, our, our larger scale projects in, in Samoa, um, and there you know one of the things that is always kind of a little bit more flexible. Um, and, you know, it may be potentially open to mistakes, but, you know, we know, for example, that we can always have a market for coconuts and cocoa um, and certainly the, the marketplace for, for fruit in Samoa locally is is quite advanced. But I think, you know, the really sort of like unknown part is, you know, trying to figure out what is most important, you know, planting during the succession phase of any new plantation. Um, so as we look to come up with different crop um, combinations, whether that's uh, you know taro or cassava or um, turmeric and ginger and other things, um, you know we 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 were kind of playing a little bit in the dark there. And so as a result, um, you know one of the things we realized is that though there's kind of this global you know marketplace for cassava that's really emerging in large part because of the the need for, for gluten free ingredients. Um, if we don't actually have the facilities to either process that, or if there's not enough local demand, then it's just a waste of time. So we ended up planting a fair amount of cassava early on um, in a number of the plots, um, in large part because it grows fast. Um, it provides good shade for for young seedlings for cocoa, for example. Um, but then farmers, if they end up with cassava and nothing to do with it, then it become you know I would say demoralized a little bit, and then you end up with a lot of cassava without a marketplace. And so, um, you know, it's one of those things that you want to make sure you do your best to sort of develop those relationships and trust. Um, But then if you encourage farmers to grow something that nobody wants, then it's always like, you know, kind of a a problem. And so you you learn, you know, (laughs) I would say, you know, sometimes not as quickly as you should. Um, So, for example, there's a a great species in, in the Pacific called Noni um which is is really fantastic very resilient it grows um in pretty much any soil type um and it was clear there even with some good pruning that you know noni could be you know substituted for cassava in some cases um and so we learned as a result of our kind of like ongoing engagement with farmers that we should you know maybe shift to focus a little bit there even though noni is a you know it's a perennial tree crop but you can actually you know, sort of prune and maintain at a relatively low level to continue to provide that shade during that succession period. So I would say that would be just a perfect example of something that we think make a whole lot of sense and it works in other countries. Um, but we needed to make adjustments, you know, uh, relatively quickly in the case of Samoa.
1: Thank you so much for being so honest with your experience and, and sharing all of this with us. Somehow, uh, I find it so motivating when we're talking about mistakes and learnings because it's like, wow, you know, everyone's human. Even the people doing the most amazing stuff um, get some stuff wrong, and you know that comforts me somehow. <laughs> so it's great.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, to be honest with you, we're pretty transparent. I mean, we've made a lot of mistakes, um, you know, but I, I think you know our sort of like motto or approach is like you know it's, it's fine to make mistakes as long as you're you're moving forward, um, and then you just like honest with it because you know th- this is this is tough work in general. You know, you need to kind of. You know, find your space between. You know, you're primarily a commercial entity, right? Um, but you also have this, this these these ethics that really focus on you know rural development and you know human empowerment and all these other values. And so you need to be able to balance that all, um, not only to have you know be able to sleep at night <laughs> with a clear conscience, but really I would say in the long term um, by making sure you have sort of this transparency and commitment that that's that, that can only help your business down the road. So. I think it's important to be honest.
1: (laughs) That's a great ethic and that's how we all learn. So for the last part of the interview, uh, we also wanted to have a bit of a perspective of, you know, understanding what it takes for a company like Dr. Brunner to integrate uh, agroforestry and regenerative agriculture in their supply chain and to scale it. So maybe to, to give an idea, to give us an idea, um, could you explain a bit, you know, where you're at now in terms of integrating these regenerative practices, And, you know, what are the next steps and what kind of scale are we talking about? Now,
2: that's a great question. And I I may not exactly know (laughs) since it's kind of, you know, kind of a a changing landscape. But I can give you just sort of a general idea. Um, You know, so first off, I I should point out that Dr. Bronner's is is relatively unique. So it's it's a family owned business. Um, And so as a result, um, we have a lot more sort of longer term perspectives than let's say a publicly traded company would, you know, a lot of times either through, you know, venture capital and other investors, or if you have stockholders, you know, they want to see a very quick return on their investment. So we have the luxury and and privilege really to be, you know, much more, um, you know, of of a long-term thinking as far as our our planning there. So we're really lucky to have, um, you know, fantastic family that is able to give us a lot of uh, leeway to be able to to do these projects, knowing that we may not see a huge return, you know, in 12 months or 18 months. I think that's really, really important. Um, So I'd say, you know, in general, you know, there needs to be some financing (laughs) or approach to be able to realize that, you know, actually, Implementing agroforestry in some cases may take a while to be profitable, though that's certainly not our kind of goal. Hopefully, we'd have enough sort of production in the early years to make it profitable in general. But, anyways, I just wanted to underscore that point because I think that's one of the biggest challenges for businesses. And other companies to be able to really implement these projects is that the startup capital is not insignificant and the return on investment sometimes takes a, a little bit longer. Um, so I would say, you know, broadly speaking, you know, the vast majority of our raw materials come from um, perennial crops. Um, but just because it's perennial doesn't necessarily mean it has the agroforestry values that we're looking to implement. Um, so what we've done is a couple of things. One, um, in most, many of our projects we've begun to do, you know, if, if, not larger scale, you know, plantings with farmers, um, we've at least started the process of training and establishing pilot, uh, plots to be able to demonstrate and train farmers there. So that's really, I would say the first step. Um, and then as we look to sort of leverage, uh, financing, we can then expand that out with more farmers. And really our goal isn't that farmers, you know, even if they have a small plot, Convert everything to a really diversified agroforestry system, you know, overnight or, or you know, all at once. But we want to make sure that there's a transition to that process, um, so that way they have an opportunity that they can learn in, in the process, um, and it reduces their risk, right? You know, if they farm, they grow everything, you know, in a diversified agroforestry system, and then, for example, they have like challenges with their family and they're not able to maintain it, then that's not a good model that we would like to promote. Um, And then lastly, you know, one of the things that we've been looking at here in the United States is, um, you know, how do we leverage uh, third party certifications? Um, So, for example, you know, many consumers are familiar with, you know, BIO or organic. Um, That's been very important for the development of the marketplace. Um, Certainly, fair trade is another element that's very, very important. We want to make sure that, you know, farmers are paid fairly for their production and that workers are protected um, and treated fairly um, throughout the supply chain. Um, but the reality is is that um, in a way they're they're a little bit incomplete. Um, so Dr. Bronner's and a couple of other um, NGOs and businesses like Patagonia, um, as well as research outfits, um, decided to create a third-party certification called the Regenerative Organic certifi- Certified. Um, and really, our goal was to bring together not only organic and fair trade, um, but really to layer on um, additional elements that focus primarily on soil health. And so one of the things we realized um, you know, early on is just because it's organic doesn't mean it's actually ecological. So we wanted to come up with a system that could actually bring all of these values under one roof and make sure that uh, farmers and producers are actually rewarded for their regenerative practices. So that, that process has kicked off. And over the course of the last year, there was a number of pilots, including um, three at our projects in India, Sri Lanka, and in Ghana. Um, and our hope is that um, there would be sort of a commercial pathway um, for those producers looking to market their crops as regenerative, um, you know, in the marketplace. And I think that's really critical. Um, there needs to be this combination of, you know, upfront financing, a long-term perspective, but also a pathway for, for farmers to be rewarded um, for all of the investment that they're doing in regenerative practices. And we think this this certification, the ROC, uh, might be one way to do that.
1: And could Dr. Bronner's be certified like a, All of its suppliers could have that certification. Is that something then that would apply to Dr. Bronner's products?
2: Yep, so that is ultimately our goal. Um, You know, we, um, as a result of the pilot, our virgin coconut oil out of Sri Lanka was one of the first products to be um, to be certified as regenerative organic. Um, And really, our goal is that the rest of our supply chains will will go along that pathway. Um, But you know, one of the challenges that we're facing going forward um, and this is something that's, you know, a big challenge for people all over the world with, with third-party certifiers, is that with COVID, um, we're seeing sort of limits on how much transportation or, you know, travel can be done, you know, even within countries or, you know, from, you know, outside countries as well. So as a result, all of those audits to actually do the certification um, have been put on hold in some cases. So we're exploring, you know, whether or not we can do this with, you know, virtual audits or, or you know, self-reporting or, or what have you. Um, but ultimately, our goal would be able to to make sure that all of our supply chains or, or major raw materials are certified regenerative organic. Um, and to be honest, um, you know, we're, we're quite confident that we can get there. In, in large part, we've got, you know, a good, you know sort of foundation of organic and, and fair practices already um all of our you know major raw materials are organic and fair trade um so basically we just sort of need to continue our sort of pathway towards regenerative production um and I think we'll get
1: there do you have a date for that objective uh, is it a matter of a decade <laughs> of a few years or more
2: yeah i would say you know for the tropical perennial um crops i would say we would get there you know probably in you know 2 to 3 years Um, You you know, for some of the more um, dry land or arid crops, you know, things like olive oil or jojoba oil, that might take a little bit longer um, because, you know, the sort of the infrastructure and approach is is really different. And so we have to rely on our partners there to be able to, you know, design those systems. And we we certainly know that they've been doing, you know, some of those things already. You know, certainly our our partners in Palestine, Canaan Fair Trade. I mean, they're they're working with you know um, olive trees that are over over a thousand years old in some cases, so that's that's pretty regenerative to me. <laughs> um, but that being said, you know we want to figure out the the best approach, you know, for most of our, our raw materials. Um, and so I think for the tropical you know oil crops, that is probably sooner than later. But Um, There are a number of other crops, you know, like especially in in essential oils like lavender, for example, or eucalyptus or tea tree, um, where that may take a little bit longer um, in large part because those are are third party suppliers. And we don't have as much, you know, kind of influence or control there as we would otherwise.
1: And I was wondering, you know, you mentioned that one of the main obstacles is um, that, you know, extra cost that comes with uh, maybe having this truly regenerative uh, supply chain. And I'm wondering, you know, how is Is Dr. Bronner able to do that? Is it, you know, through a strategy of having really high, um, you know, quality products and is it realistic for them to, to have that level of quality throughout their whole supply chain?
2: Um, you know, I, I think it is, um, you know, one of the great things about Dr. Bronner's is that we've made this commitment to, to transition to organic and then fair trade and now to regenerative. Um, and I think that the Bronner family is pretty realistic about all of the, the challenges and the timeline there. Um, and so I think from our perspective that we're, we're on that pathway pretty pretty clearly But what we've also realized is basically two things. One, I've talked about the diversification on the ground. That is a a pretty clear element to facilitate that transition for farmers. Um, They need to make sure that there's additional income uh, to justify this investment um, and this conversion. Um, And then similarly, what we're realizing is that um, it's really important to be able to collaborate with other um, like-minded companies, um, whether it's body care or food, for example, um, everybody that sources from agricultural raw material supply chains, um, we, we realize that it's, to be able to scale out this regenerative approach really requires collaboration. So, what we've done here in the United States is start to work with a small group of companies committed to regenerative practices. Um, and insofar as that we can um, leverage either our buying power or our investments. Or just education, um, then the chances of us scaling out uh, regenerative practices is is a lot better. So it's been really exciting because you know through this this collaboration, we're seeing even competitors work together um, on sourcing and uh, you know farmer support, for example, um, as a way to be able to invest in in regeneration. Um, So this is really kind of I would say one of the more hopeful things I've seen during this you know COVID pandemic is that. Um, There's been greater collaboration and just kind of openness and and transparency um, with other people in the industry, um, because people are starting to realize that not only are consumers demanding a regenerative product, for sure, um, but really, you know, their long term viability depends on regenerative practices on the ground. Um, And so insofar as that we can do that um, collaboratively and really kind of leverage our power, um, all the better.
1: Yeah, it's 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 great to hear that, and uh, I really hope you, you do manage to do that for for everyone's benefit. And it's great to have that perspective of, um, you know how companies are, are ch- tackling that challenge. Because as I said before, we're more used to uh, direct selling in a sense, and and you know dealing with the final consumer as well. So it's great that companies are positioning themselves. I did have um maybe um, among my last questions, you know, knowing all it takes to. Um, to change your supply chains towards regenerative practices. Does it make you optimistic that um, that's something that we're going to see like expand through a lot of companies? Or do you think the constraints you were talking about uh, in terms of investments and returns of investments are massive? How do you feel about that transition? Um, I would say I'm both optimistic, but like realistic, <laughs> you know,
2: it, it, like as we've talked about, you know, there's, there's a big sort of education gap and training gap. That's a, a reality. Certainly, the financing is going to be a big issue, um, and I, you know, I think that you know there is a. I, I would say I'm optimistic that there's kind of a sea change um, with a lot of the development agencies out there, um, whether it's you know DFID in the UK or GIZ in Germany uh, and, and others, um, where they see uh, the value in um, regenerative practices and really looking for ways to um, facilitate the, you know, the adoption of these practices, not only, you know, at the farm gate, you know, with farmers, but also kind of in these intermediary steps, whether it's processing or distribution, you know, I, one of the sort of most, you know, it's it's a little bit off topic, but one of the, the, the the most, you know, disappointing statistics out there is from the FAO that, you know, there's a fair amount of food waste that happens, you know, globally, and it's, you know, almost like equivalent to like the emissions of China in terms of, uh, you know, uh, greenhouse gases. Um, But most of that either happens, you know, at consuming level with consumers in their homes or at at restaurants, but a fair amount of it is just like food loss, right? There's so much food that goes to waste because of poor transportation, um, lack of refrigeration or processing, uh, particularly in the global South. And so as a result, like, like there needs to be greater investment there. And so, you know, we could talk all we want about the sort of agronomic practices that lead to regeneration but we also have to be just really honest to say hey look we need to have a full-scale transformation of the food system if we're able to accommodate that so i would say insofar as that there is additional sort of like funding and realization at that level i think that's absolutely critical Um, and i think the one sort of silver lining that i've seen as a result of covid has been um, that one you know, people are starting to realize that obviously, you know, having, you know, healthy and safe food is, is pretty critical um, and that there's been sort of a renewed effort both here in the United States and really in a lot of the countries where we work, where people are starting to go back to the, to, to the, the country and, and farm again. So that to me is really exciting. We need to make sure that those uh, young people actually have a pathway to to farm, you know, profitably and stably. Um, and I think regenerative agriculture is the way to do it.
1: Wow, great concluding great concluding remarks there. Um, thank you so much for, for all this information. And as a last tiny question, we'd love to know what would you like to hear about in the next episodes on the podcast and what kind of topics and questions are you excited about? Well, I
2: mean, so first of all, I want to say congratulations on, on the first couple of episodes. I, I recommended it to all of my <laughs> friends and, and colleagues. Um, I think, you know, your approach of looking at both you know, all of the different elements that go into regenerative agroforestry are so critical, whether that is getting very specific into, you know, the experience on the ground and and how to design and carry out these programs to the marketing and value added step. Um, And then lastly, I think, you know, what's important are these big structural questions, like how do we actually you know, scale out regenerative agroforestry at a larger scale and what are really kind of those implications. You know, I, I continue to look at the situation in the Amazon um, with dread and, and I keep thinking like, wow, you know, agroforestry could really release a lot of that pressure to expand the, the agricultural landscape. Um, and actually protect some of these this this native land so i think you know touching on all of these points is just so critical we can't just focus on one or the other Um, and i think the podcast is really the the best platform to do that
1: on these kinds words from ryan that's all for today we'd really love to have your inputs your questions and um, your feedback on how the podcast is going so please reach out to us you can do that on our website or on social media and as usual you'll find all the attached and useful links uh, below the episodes.